How's it going? Hi, Carol. I am so excited that you're here today. And I always say here today as if you're sitting in the room, you are not sitting in the room. You are, you are sitting very far <laughs> away. I kind of wish I was sitting in the room with you where you are. So where are you? Where, are you? <laughs> where exactly are you? Yeah, so I am in Tobago, um, which is one of the smaller islands, beautiful Caribbean islands. Yeah, I am I'm here with my, my fur baby. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I have always wanted to visit Trinidad and Tobago. Many people think I'm from there. I'm really not quite sure why, but you um, can pass. I can pass. Look at that. I can pass. <laughs> I can pass as a as a TNT or woohoo. <laughs> but um, yeah, so tell me, tell me what you do. Well, you know, I don't introduce people. I don't read bios and stuff like that because we're just having this down to earth conversation. But to kind of place you, I place you where you are. But why don't you say a little bit about like what you do or what you've been doing? Yeah. So, um, well, right now I'm the manager of Global Peer Support with Mental Health America National. But really, this, uh, I guess, my journey, you know, really started in the fact that I, you know, went through, you know, a lot of things growing up that affected, you know, my mental health, my memory, all these things. And I exist within a country, and I love my island, um, but it's a country where mental health is still very much stigmatized. You know, we have a mental health act that says that someone who has a mental health condition um, can't even be the director of an organization. So that's where we're at. Mm. And it's really unfortunate. And I, I, part of, you know, my journey is I really try to just figure out how to advocate for myself because I realized very early on the system wasn't working for me and wasn't working for my experience. So I really started getting into just social justice field. I tell people I have a little bit of a warrior spirit in me, but I, I tend to often gravitate towards, you know, the black sheep persons and Somehow in my early 20s, my career really just involved like child abuse issues, domestic violence, special education, and just, just fields where persons were oppressed and needed someone to be a voice for them and be a voice for their experience. And then I guess that energy really propelled me more. Well, why am I not a voice for myself? Why am I not a voice for my own experience? If the system is like this, and it is, you know, not changing. And I have, I, I, I had experiences, really awful experiences with our mental systems of, you know, psychiatrists or, or just mental health professionals on a whole, sometimes thinking that they know more about your lived experience than you. And um, I had to find my voice there mm-hmm. and really speak up for myself, but also help my friends who also had similar experiences and wouldn't show what to do. So I, I basically turned that into a career. You know? yeah. I, I tell people I, I stumbled into this um, and I somehow got connected to organizations um, like Global Mental Peer Network and 10 years on the line, this is where we are. Wow. Yeah, I think that's a common a common story in a way for many people, the stumbling into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, finding 
finding their own voice. It's easy, I think, for many people to kind of look around and go, wow, let me let me help this cause. Let me help this person or this group of folks who have experienced discrimination or, you know, abuse or anything like that while we sit around and we like are forgetting about our own self. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that can happen lots of times. And then finding out, well, wait a minute, there are other people who are going through this as well. And uh, we um, kind of get pulled into or stumble into this social justice a- activist uh, peer world. It's really phenomenal. I don't know who comes out of the wound going, yeah, I, I want to be a peer. <laughs> I, don't <know> that, <laughs> I don't think that really happens. <laughs> you know? Or you diagnosis and go, oh, immediately, I want to be a peer. It's like, I don't think that really kind of happens. But um, so you said you found out about the Global Mental Health Peer um, Network. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with it, but don't know that much about it. I actually just stumbled into it maybe a couple months ago. So what exactly um, is it? What, it, what, do, what do they do? And, and, and who are they? And all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, sure. So um, the Global Mental Peer Network, it's really a network of peers of persons who have lived experience of mental health conditions based all around the world. So I was in Trinidad and Tobago experiencing my depression and just being like, I want a community that understands me. And then Googled and found um, this organization. They're led by their founder, Charlie Sunko, who has a lived experience of schizophrenia. Um, they're based out in South Africa. And really and truly, what I found was amazing about it were they were all professionals. You know, they were lawyers and doctors and social advocates. But the commonality is that they all had a lived experience of having a mental health condition, a lived experience of seeing um, mental health systems really um, not work in their best interest. And they all had a desire to change that. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I found my tribe. Oh, my goodness. And <laughs> I, was, I was so excited. Um, and, yeah, they do a lot of advocacy efforts. Um, I was really able to publish in Lancet Psychiatry where we spoke about the fact that, you know, universal health coverage is not enough. And we really need to look beyond universal health coverage when we think about mental health, about the quality that we're giving to persons. It's a beautiful organization and I really advocate for prisons um if you want to be an advocate for your country that is a great place to start well you know I actually didn't know that many of the members had all sorts of professions for some reason this is just the way my brain sort of functioned at the moment. Um, I thought all of them were in some kind of peer support work, peer support leadership, that sort of thing. But um, this is really interesting that they have all sorts of professions. And then um, the commonality, as you say, is lived experience and then advocating for improvements. So you you said too, and and this is the first time I've ever heard anybody say this, and I'm going to have to go look, look at the article about um, universal health care not being enough. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dot dot dot. Okay. Dot dot dot. Uh, uh, say more because I think yeah. in the U.S. too, right? We don't have universal health care, but we want universal health care, and that's like universal health care. Period. Like, okay, and you're just saying, well, no, it's not enough. So, what about it isn't enough? Since we don't have it, what about it isn't working? Or I not not working, but what about it isn't enough? Yeah. So coming from the lens of someone who is in a country that has universal health coverage, it's great. It's great that I, if I get an accident today, I can get an ambulance that will pick me up at the accident site, hire me to the hospital, and, and that's well. But then we're talking about 
how long I'm going to have to wait to see a doctor. What are the kind of drugs I'm going to get? What kind of quality we're looking at? When it comes to mental health, for instance, I tell people about navigating mental health systems across here. So it's completely free, wonderful. We have psychiatrists, we have psychologists, but you're going to have to get to the um, psychiatric center at least like 7 a.m. if they're going to open ECM. And you're not going to leave there until 3 p.m. And then the quality of the drugs that you're going to get they're not going to be FDA approved. Most of them are generic. You're talking about a lot more side effects that you're going to experience. You're also talking about what is the extent that that psychiatrist is actually going to speak to you. So, for instance, I've had psychiatrists who I showed up for the appointment at like 9 a.m. I didn't see the psychiatrist until 1 and he spoke to me for five minutes and said, you have borderline personality disorder and there's nothing I can do to help you. Wait, whoa, whoa, wait. Yeah. wait back her up. Back her up. Well, <laughs> you got to back her up, like put her in uh-huh. reverse, sure. make the beepy noise. Uh-huh. So the psychiatrist said, you have, wait, borderline, borderline. personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Thank you for showing up and bye-bye like that. Yeah, like there's nothing I can do to help you. Oh. And those very clear words. And I'm... I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm I'm hopeless. I'm absolutely hopeless. Oh, like, if a psychiatrist is telling me this, you know, wh- what can I do? So, so that is the the lens I'm coming from when I say universal health coverage is not enough because it's great. It's great that you can see a psychiatrist for free, and I don't have to, you know, pay for anything related to that, and I can get medications for free. But the quality and even the access, right? Because yes. do we have enough mental health professionals to um, fit our our population? You know, those kinds of stuff. So it's really important, I think, when we're having conversations about even implementing universal health coverage, that we ensure that the quality, especially when it comes to mental health, is good. It's good quality care because that's yeah. what people want. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is so interesting because every time we talk about universal health coverage, you know, and there are people who want it, there are people who don't want it. You know, our ACA is some sort of version of uh, middle ground, I suppose, for that. But mm-hmm. but um I think we think of it as this is the panacea. This is the, I would say the golden ticket. This is going to fix it all. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, wait, maybe not. I mean, it's going to still be inherent with some of the problems that we have in our existing system, like access. Mm-hmm. So great. Now you've opened up the system, but if we don't have enough provider and provider types, it's going to be a lot of people accessing very few uh, provider, provider types. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, the quality of the, the care. <laughs> it's very sad that, you know, any kind of provider would say, yeah, nice, nice seeing you. But I mean, even if you have stage four cancer, people don't treat you like that. Exactly. You know, it's not, oh, I can't do anything for you. Bye-bye. No, yeah. there's still things that people will do um, to um, help a person live their fullest life, even if they've been given a stage four cancer diagnosis. It's never like, a, okay, and go home and we'll see you later. That's kind of weird and very sad. So I think this is a really important point for us to think about. And it's something that we struggle with without the universal health care, right? Is is access, Mm -hmm. waiting for appointments, um, maybe not going and sitting and waiting, but actually waiting days and days and days to even get an appointment to go and show up. 
to then go sit and wait. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and then of course, the um, integration and use of peer services varies across the globe, right? So in the US, you know, we have certified peer specialists in some states, about 43 or so states, they can be reimbursed by Medicaid, and hopefully all of the states will join in. So when you you know, started uh, being a part of a global mental health peer network. How did you then move into kind of what you're doing now with um, mental, um, MHA, Mental Health America? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to work in mental health field, but, you know, I don't have a master's in mental health counseling or social work or anything like that. I have a master's, so therefore I can't get into the mental health field, but also because peer support and lived experience, those aren't languages that we even use across here. So I can't even get into mental health in the way that I want to get into mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So it was all of those factors coming together of, I don't know if I can work in my country in the way that I would like to work in this field. And therefore, maybe I should branch out. And also, I am a person with mental health condition. I don't have the capacity to have a day job and an evening job just so that I can fulfill the passion that I want to fulfill. So Mm -hmm. it happened that it was during the pandemic. I know so many people really lost a lot during the pandemic. Um, But for me, in in some ways, it it really helped me to um, broaden my horizon because I was already doing remote work before the pandemic working with the organization in South Africa, doing that entire thing. So it was an easy transition when I saw the job at Mental Health America. Of course I could do this if I live in Trinidad and Tobago. There's nothing stopping me. Yeah. Um, it really attracted me and it even attracted me more the fact that I can work in peer support, right? And I can actually talk about my lived experience. I I think it's a, I, I don't know about you, but I think it's a real blessing that every day I get to talk about my lived experience with mental health. And I can talk about the fact that, yeah, I live with this thing and it has truly affected my life, but also does some really good things for me. And let me like, let me help you advocate for yourself. Like right. I could help you be your own advocate. Um, and yeah, I just, I end up just falling more in love with this field by being in the shop. Oh, wow. I'm going to ask an interesting question because I know we had talked about this uh, a little bit that this summer, and you're right, you know, COVID has been, it's been very hard, you know, on, on everybody. This is not how we would wish to live our lives. This is not the grief that collectively we all would have wanted to go through and we're still going through it. So I do not in any way want to romanticize at all uh, this period of time that has been so difficult. But one of the things that um, I think it, it has done in some ways, because not everybody has access to Wi-Fi, computers, smartphones, things like that, but it has broken down some of the divides. And, and when I say divides, I'm talking about global divides. Like I was able this summer to um, attend the, what was it, the Caribbean Psych- Psychiatric Conference? What was that that I, I was telling you about? Uh, Caribbean Mental Health Conference. Yeah, like, I was like, wait, they have one? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course mm-hmm. y'all have one, duh. Mm-hmm. But um, I have never <laughs> attended it because I, you know, it's not mm-hmm. often I can just hop on a plane and go to the Caribbean. But I really was impressed by the conference, learning about yeah. um, the conceptualization, the 
the cultural alignment. I love reading about the breadfruit and uh, Fred Hickling and all that. <laughs> like, but and one of the questions I I, I had, and, and I would pop some things in the chat because I was like, I'll I'll titty chat with y'all. <laughs> was where are the people with lived experience? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. um, and things were the way that the conference was running and the topics and the way people were talking about mental health. And I will say mental health and recovery. I was like, y'all are progressive. And where are the people with lived experience? (laughs) So where are you? Like, does that not happen in the, I mean, is that something that um, um, I would love to see that happen? Because I really was very impressed by the conference. Yeah, I would love to see it happen too, Karis. And I am truly advocating for that. Um, But understanding Caribbean history, we are very much religious and in terms of mental health, clinically focused, right? But because there's such a big religious focus of if you are experiencing these things, then you are abnormal and something is wrong with you. And, you know, I remember when I was telling prisons or telling mental professionals about my psychosis episodes, there wasn't a conversation of, oh, let's try to understand this experience, right? But it was more of a, let's try to suppress it. Mm. Or is it is it telling you to harm yourself or to harm others? Okay, it's not cool, then, then just forget about it, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the things I try to get people to understand is that my psychosis saved me. Right. My psychosis was the best thing that happened to me because it took me out of a really, you know, horrible situation. So we do have to include lived experiences in order to get these very unique narratives coming from it. Right. And then you also think about um, not just lived experience of having a mental health, but lived experience in terms of being LGBTQ, for instance. Our, our laws are not progressive in any way when it comes to LGBTQ identities. Mm-hmm. So then we have those things coming into play. And I think that has been the major hindrance of bringing lived experience to the table. Because if we bring lived experience to the table and we start listening to LGBTQ identities and we start listening to psychosis identities, what are we going to do with that? It makes people uncomfortable. And that uncomfortableness that people have to sit with, I can understand why we aren't brought to the table. But I do hope that within the near future, some sort of change will take place, especially with our laws. Like I said, our laws are still at the place where if you have even gone to one therapy session, then you are considered a person with a mental health condition. And therefore, that means you are actually not allowed to be the director of an organization or an NGO. Wow. And the reality is that many of us, many of our directors have these experiences, but no one's going to say because that's what the right. law says, right? Um, right? So there's work to be done. Um, I must say, yeah. though, that within the last um, couple of years, I have seen small shifts. Um, happen. We have, you know, shifts that took place with a major LGBTQ law, um, removing debug, moving buggery. Um, we had a shift that takes place in our private institution, having LGBTQ spouses covered under insurance. So we have seen small mm. shifts take place, but there's, yeah. there's a lot more to do. Wow. 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 Okay. Wow. <laughs> like, <what is> <laughs> 
catch up. I got to catch up. I mean, you know, sometimes we stay in our own little, you know, bubbles of our own countries or our own localities. And it's so important to hear a global perspective, you know, because it's, it doesn't look like what it looks like in the U.S., of course. Um, and um, so I was going to ask this question about, so when you say that, you know, your psychosis saved you, how do you help? folks understand that. And that is a completely different way of um, thinking about um, these experiences. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that within different spaces, the conversation about psychosis changes, right? So let's say, for instance, so we have our Western medicine that, you know, we're really, you know, sort of think that psychosis is a bad thing. Psychosis is an unwanted thing. And we're not glamorizing it um, at all. It can be a very hard experience for a lot of persons. But then shift that to a religious experience. If you can see visions or if you can hear from angels and hear voices, you're considered a prophet. Mm-hmm. You're considered actually like a good person you're considered the one to actually go to and I think for me like a lot of people ask me you know Cass when that first started happening to you at five like weren't you scared about it like you were seeing I was seeing three women that would come into my room at five years old like weren't you scared and I'm like no I wasn't because I grew up in a very religious community I went to church every single Sunday and Sunday school and all these things so like the idea of seeing things that weren't there was like, oh, well, that's just a religious experience. Mm. It wasn't scary for me. And I, I didn't even have the language of psychosis until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I just knew it was things that I was seeing. Some of the things could be scary, but most of them were really good and really comforting. Mm. And that's what I mean when I see my psychosis saved me because it was good experiences. I even had this one experience um, that I don't often talk about when my dad passed away and I clearly heard a voice that was like, do you want to see him die? And I was like, no, like, no, I don't want to. And my dad died in the ambulance and I never actually saw him die. Mm. Like, that wasn't a scare. Like, I, it was so shocking for me mm-hmm. in the moment, thinking back. I'm like, wait, I answered back that voice, like, very, mm-hmm. you know, normal. Um, I had experiences of, like, seeing angels in my room after my dad died that I knew was just there to, like, comfort me. Um, and none of those experiences were ever scary. So when people think that we need to remove the psychosis experience, I think we, I was like, wait, hold up. There's, there's more to this. Yeah. What what is happening? Why why are these things here? And you know, I credit all credit to my therapist. Um, she's really helped me to understand that when I am seeing things, what are they trying to tell me? Like mm-hmm. what information about a situation that I didn't get that they're getting? Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, are you afraid? Are you not afraid? If you're not afraid, okay, let's let's look mm-hmm. at this. Let's understand what's happening here. And I think this is why, like, trauma therapists, I think, for me, are so important. Mm. And the field of trauma therapy is so important because it really um, brings a different lens to these experiences. Wow. Wow. That is just so powerful. I think, you know, these are things that we've been trying to articulate, I think, from the lived experience for many years around um, 
voice hearing experiences and psychosis experiences, uh, being able to talk to people about those experiences, asking people, what does it mean to them? What meaning does it have to the, for them? And also, of course, you know, what has happened to you? What, what, is, your, what is your life experience that this may um, also be tapping into is so critically important. And also the, the trauma work. Oh, yes. Snap, snap, clap, clap. All those things that I do when I'm trying to like put exclamation points, but can't <laughs> I can't do that in a podcast. So I do, you know, my snaps up, right? So when we're thinking mm-hmm. about um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, LGBTQI, all of the intersectionalities, people who also live with disabilities and the intersectionalities there, what are some of the things that our organizations need to do, do you think, to support people in the workplace? That's one thing. And then I think the other question is, how do we help people you know, move into leadership positions if that is something that they would like to do. You know, that we're few and far between, and I'm trying to make it less few and far between by bringing people together and having these conversations to show folks, hey, we're out there. Hello, hi. Um, so, what are so so as a start, what do, what do we need to do? Do you think within organizations to support folks? Yeah, such a multi-leader question. Um, to support folks, I am a firm advocate when it comes to trauma-informed care and healing-centered engagement, and what do those actionable steps look like for organizations? I think that is a lot of conversation about trauma-informed care happening, and I think that's really beautiful and really great, but sometimes what I don't see enough of is transformation of policies and systems that relate to trauma-informed care, right? So how are we really um, ensuring that we're implementing this and we're thinking about trauma, particularly for our historically excluded communities, right? Mm-hmm. So we have our our Black communities experiencing microaggressions every day on the news, at work. Do we have policies that speak to that? Do we have policies yeah. that speak to that experience? And I think it's really important to sit with the model for trauma-informed care and move beyond saying those words and really start implementing what does healing look like for communities. And when you talk about how can we help people move into leadership, um, I think it's more than that. Mm. I think that, you know, with the movement that has really been happening over the past couple of years, has propelled organizations to put BIPOC folks, people of color, into um, positions. What I think is still a stumbling block is the knowledge part of it. So we can put the person in a position, but are we giving them the knowledge that supports their position? right? Are we giving them the mentorship that supports their position? And I Mm -hmm. think that it's about moving beyond, oh, we just, we made our quota, we hired 10 more Black persons within our organization. Check that box. (laughs) Check that box off, right? (laughs) But that's in our report. Good, right? Yes. Wrong, wrong. (laughs) Yeah, big old X. (laughs) Big old X right here. Right? It's so much more than that because then I think it's so interesting that oftentimes I don't think we recognize that for some persons in the BIPOC community, 
exclusion is happening and they are not even realizing exclusion is happening because they don't even have the knowledge to know that they're being excluded. And I think that inclusion is a purposeful effort to ensure that that person has all the knowledge and resources that has been attributed to everyone else in the organization. And unless they're really thinking through that, I personally think that we're missing the mark. Right. Oh, I just, again, snaps, claps, dropping mic, all that stuff, because this is, you know, in a big Y-A-A-A-A-S-S-S exclamation. Yes. Because, and the reason I say that is it's not just to say, oh, I hired 10 people or I hired a DEI officer or I, you know, brought these people in and now um, I look as if I'm diverse. If there's, and, or, you, you know, same thing with people with lived experience if there's no intentionality to ensuring their success in that role. And I say for all employees, this is one of the things I used to think about is that when I used to run my own organization, wasn't my organization, but when I used to run an organization, I'll put it that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I used to think of my role as my job is to make sure people exceed their own expectations. And how do I do that? And that it's not if they come in in one in one position, but want to go on to another position or even go on to another organization in another position that is a ladder ladder up or a lateral to something that they want. I look at that as I have an obligation to support that person's professional and personal growth. Yeah. And I just love doing that. And I think a lot of times we forget about that. It's more about, oh my God, I got to get work done. Oh my God, I have to meet these quotas. Oh my gosh, I have to do this. But when we build these organizations that are about looking like the communities that we serve, wherever we happen to be, and supporting the workforce to be the best that they can be, oh my gosh, it's to me, it's kind of fun. <laughs> it makes work yeah. kind of fun. Um, I mean, hard, yes. But um, so I, I can't thank you enough for really giving some some voice to that. And I think um, I generally ask what's one thing everybody can do, but I, I think you gave some great examples. And, you know, I also want to add as well, you spoke about lived experience. And people, people often ask me of like, you know, how do we, how do we change the system? You know, you know, we want to, want to figure out how to be, you know, diverse and like culturally sensitive, but like, we don't have, you know, especially like white people, you know, especially with say, like, we don't have the lived experience behind us. So how do we, how do we do it? And I'd like to remind people that lived experiences created the systems that we see now, right? If you want to shape or reshape the systems, then therefore you need to invite lived experiences again to the table. And now these lived experiences need to be diverse and they need to showcase historically excluded communities. You need to have persons who have disabilities and psychosis and mental health conditions and are black and brown. And you need to have them and you need to have those diversities, those diverse experiences to reshape the policies. So mm-hmm. you can't think that we're going to reshape the policies, but we're going to continue with the same white heterocentric board and somehow reshape the policies. It's not going to work that way. So it takes intentional work if we're going to reshape the systems and the policies that we see right now. Yes. You know, oh yeah. Doubling down on that. Definitely that um, it's hard to 
imagine what it's like to be in a black body, to be in an Asian body, to be LGBTQ. If you don't imagine what it's like. Ask people, ask people to partnership with you, do that co-design, co-production. Co- and pay them. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, please. Oh, oh, snap, 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 snap. You best be paying people. Oh my gosh, that is a huge one. Don't be inviting people to the table and then like not even offer, uh, offer. And, and I always say, make the offer. Don't make it an assumption. Oh, well, you know, they're on disability and they can't. You don't know what a person can or cannot do or what a person may or may not need. If a person's on disability, I say, well, first ask, what what are they allowed to accept as far as compensation? Um, and to, and if it's not monetary, it might be, you know, please pay for my transportation to and from and make sure that I'm fed during the day while I'm there. Um, and or there may be other ways in which um, compensation can be um, had. But everybody else, this is so big. Um, you just hit like, why'd you go there? Like, we're trying to wrap- <laughs> You just went there and now you're going to have me go down a big old line around. Um, and I'm looking at, you know, when we do some system change stuff, we have a lot of stakeholder meetings um, that I've been to. And, you know, um, the most of the people there have jobs in which they're paid to be at those stakeholder meetings. But when lived experience or people who are service recipients are part of um, the stakeholder process, they're not compensated, but they're giving up mm-hmm. of themselves of their lives, of their stories. Yeah, you best butter D-A-M-N, pay them. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> like, you know, and, and so thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your wisdom dropping. I mean, just amazing, amazing. I'm so glad we've had the opportunity to meet. Um, we haven't met in person. We've only met um, via virtual platforms, but um, I'm so glad we've had the opportunity to meet and to have this conversation today. So thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you so much, Harris. I, I appreciate this. And I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, great, great. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening in. And we look forward to you joining us as well next week.